This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akidanol, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveler, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer to peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. Today's episode revolves around an incredibly important question. What does diversity mean to you? For today's guest, diversity is more than just affirmative action or merely meeting a hiring quota. Instead, diversity and inclusion have the power to drive innovation and profitability. How? That's what our next guest Chike Ukebu is about to reveal. As a Nigerian living in New York City, Chike's eyes were open to the power of diversity and how it can humanise and empower all of us. With a heart for inclusion and a mind for innovation, Chike founded Startup 52, the first diversity-focused tech accelerator in New York City. Their goal is to create better access to resources and capital for founders from untapped communities, such as people of colour, women and immigrants. However, Chika's desire for change didn't end there. He knew that his home country, Nigeria, could achieve an incredibly bright future for its citizens, if only it had the right leadership. Taking a tremendous leap of faith, Chika entered himself into the running for President of Nigeria and became Africa's youngest presidential candidate. Yes, He certainly is impressive. I'm so excited to talk to Chike today about diversity and inclusion, the story behind his presidential campaign, and how we can all become better, resourceful leaders. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story, and tag us at The Peers Project so that all of our other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these game-changing millennial entrepreneurs. Okay, without further ado, here is my conversation with the brilliant Chike Ukebu. Chike, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Of course, you know, you and I connected recently over LinkedIn and as soon as we did, we kind of fell into conversation about our heritage and the fact that we're both from Nigeria. I'm half Nigerian and you're full Nigerian and we just kind of got off on a really great foot. So I knew I wanted to have you on the show and I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Great. So for those of us who don't know who you are and, and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Let's see. Where do we start? So I am Nigerian, full-blooded. <laughs> um, lived in New York. I've, I've lived in New York for 17 years. Uh, so practically almost half, half my life. Um, came to go to school, you know, got a job right after. And as I say, the rest is history. Uh, but then, um, let's see, last year, you know, I decided to go run for office back home. Uh, so I did that. You know, turned out to be uh, the youngest person, you know, to run for president in Nigeria, actually in Africa. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, it was an exciting. Uh, I can say exciting now because, you know, it's behind me. Uh, during the process, it, it it was grueling. It was um, it was nothing like I have ever experienced before. A um, lot of lessons learned. A whole of them. And in fact, uh, after the process, I needed at least about uh, three months, you know, to recover from it. You know, so it was intense, intense, intense. But prior to that, you know, my background is in biomedical engineering. Um, 
I uh, ended up launching Startup 52, which is uh, the first diversity-focused tech accelerator here in New York. Um, pretty much dedicated to, you know, creating better access to resources, the capital, to support systems for uh, people um, from what I call untapped communities. You know, so uh, people of color, uh, women, um, immigrants, veterans. I usually say if you feel like you don't belong, you belong with us. Um, so yeah, that I think that pretty much is my life goal, purpose, everything that I do. Um, it's sort of centered around that. Um, and that actually stemmed from, as uh, so I always say this, I, when I came to, I came to America in 19, as a teenage uh, boy, um, so the one thing nobody prepared me for or thought me actually was understanding that in this environment, um, I had to take on a new identity and that was blackness. Um, and uh, I came alone. So you leaving the shelter, you know, for, you know, community and parents and all of that um, and now having to face the world on your own was not an easy time uh, trying to define uh, this new identity that I had to take on, um, especially when um, a lot of, uh, not connotations, I'm trying to find the right word. Um, so blackness in America is uh, synonymous to um, not all the right things that, you know, you can know, expect, you know. Um, growing up in an environment where you're thought to be the best, you 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 grow up believing that as long as you do your best, you know, you you were pretty much excellent. Um, and if you know anything about Nigerian families, you know, um, you're only expected to be that, you know. And then you walk into this new ecosystem or this new environment. Um, and by default, the color of your skin, you know, it's this huge negative, you know. Uh, you expect it to be subpar. Uh, you expect it to speak a certain way, you know, to act a certain way. Um, you're prejudged before you even open your mouth, <laughs> you know. So, and as a teenager, you, it's it's harder to deal with those things, you know, especially if you're randomly just thrown into it. So, um, that struggle, I would say, helped to define, um, I would say, the last 17 years of my life now. Yeah. So, wow, it's. I was so excited for this interview purely because I knew so many things were going to come up like what you've just talked about around, you know, ethnicity, around fishing in, around feeling like an outsider, mm -hmm. around societal expectations and cultural differences. And yeah. I think that I think it's it's just so fascinating. I mean, I want to start with diving a bit deeper into what that purpose is and into what your mission is. So talk to us a little bit about growing up in Nigeria firstly, you know, what what did that mean for you? You know, you went to school there, mm -hmm. um, you went to university there for, a, I think it was two years or yeah. so. What was that time like you for did you? did your homework. Oh, I, I see did. That. <laughs> yeah. um, so I was born in Nigeria. So Nigeria up until 19 was all I knew, right? Um, from pre-K to, you know, grade school to whatever, oh, everything pretty much. Um I was actually the black sheep, mm. the naughty one, the bunch. Uh, so I give a lot of trouble, and I got in trouble for giving a lot of trouble. Um, but I, I think that defiance, you know, um, ended up becoming a trait that worked for me, you know, um, in my adulthood. In fact, you know, I, I don't usually talk about this, but part of the reason, the only reason why I was allowed to come out of the U.S., well, two things, I would say. Um, one, my parents, I had promised them that I was going to go study biomedical engineering and then go on to medical school. Because, <laughs> you know, as a Nigerian, there are only two things that matter. You're either a doctor or, a or an engineer. And then maybe a lawyer, you know, and whatever else. Um, so that was part of the reason why I was allowed to come out. Prior to that, my parents had insisted that nobody was going to leave until at least after your bachelor's degree. Uh, but I had run away from home at 17 uh, to go to college. Um, 
they wanted me to go to some of the college close to home because they thought I was bad and I was going to be too bad if I went too far. I decided I wanted to go far, far away and I packed up my stuff and I was out. Uh, so for close to a year, um, my father disowned me. I disowned him, all of that stuff. <laughs> yeah. So, so when I came back and, you know, we reconciled and, uh, you know, a few, actually a year later, I was like, well, I'm going to the U.S. <laughs> well, I didn't get as much, as much pushback. Um, because I'm sure at the back of their minds, they're like, well, he may run away again. And, you know, running away to the U.S., you may never see him again. So, <laughs> so we sort of worked out that, you know, middle ground. But I want to say that pretty much defined um, my experience as a child. I went to six schools before third grade because I always got expelled for being bad. Wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so... so there is hope, you know, for a lot of people, <laughs> um, you know, uh, but family was everything, mm. you know, um, I'm one of six, I'm actually number four. Um, and honestly, I don't think I remember in a single time when it was just the six of us, there were always cousins, there were friends, there were relatives around. Um, and that was the community that sort of helped shape who you are. Right. So um, we were, I don't want to say forced to learn hospitality, <laughs> but by default, you had to because you had to share everything with everyone. And for me, that was more meaningful, you know. Um, and uh, and uh, was sort of uh, difficult to reconcile with the American individualism, you know, when I came. Uh, so it was like, you know, you see people who are doing things for themselves and you're like, but, you know, that person kind of needs help, you know. And so initially was a shock. Now, not saying that the individualism is bad because, you know, at some point I learned the benefits of actually doing that and being that um, without, you know, letting other people take advantage of you and all that. Um, but initially was difficult, I guess, culturally reconciling those two things, right? Um, how do you not put the interests of other people before yours? Um, so it's been quite a journey, you know, and Nigeria shapes you into something that um, you, I guess, family makes you become, I don't know, and then just stepping out and confronting something entirely different starts to reshuffle everything, you know, that there the were plenty times when um, you go through that struggle internally between who you thought you were and who you now confront yourself becoming, you know, um, it's, it's been a ride. <laughs> <laughs> it has been a ride yeah. and I can't wait to dive a bit deeper. Yeah. So, for those of us listening who are probably, maybe they're also dealing with identity struggles or, you know, different cultural cultures that they're trying to wrap their heads around, mm -hmm. what advice would you give around coming to an identity, getting comfortable mm -hmm. with having maybe two different identities? Right. What advice would you give? Um, it's, it's, this is actually easier said than done. Um, when you tell people it's important to love yourself, mm. um, I think we take that for granted. Um, I have learned that I actually cannot genuinely love or help any other person if the value is not here first, right? Um, my, my, I think my 23rd to my 25th year, those two years I called my dark years, mm. Um, because there were a lot of struggle. Um, sometimes we think that love is, you know, doing everything for everyone, every time, right? Um, but I have learned that, no, it's a very powerful therapeutic um, response, um, especially with self-care. Um, I co-founded a nonprofit at 26... 2009, yeah, 26. And um, 
we it was self-sponsored, you know, with my co-founder. Um, and literally at some point we burned out because at the time you still had the save the world mentality, right? You just cannot let anyone, you know, fall by the wayside until you get to the point where you realize that the thing you're passionate about, it's, it's our tormenting you, you know, it becomes, you know, such, such a, so much work that sometimes you start to reevaluate certain things, right? So for people who, I had to learn to love who I was, one, to embrace being Nigerian, right? Um, even in the midst of the, the friction between African-Americans and Africans, right? I had to learn to um, become a black man, right? And, and everything, that, everything that that comes with. Um, in identifying with the African-American struggle, knowing that. So I, I had to tell, a, a cousin of mine said this one, he's like, I don't understand why you're so passionate about, you know, the African-American experience. You're not African-American. I'm like, I'm not African-American, but I'm African in America, mm-hmm. which means the day I encounter a racist cop who decides to, you know, shoot me, he's not going to ask me if I'm Nigerian or African-American. All he sees is a black man, you know? Uh, so at some point, um, all of those struggles, those challenges become all of ours, right? Um, so in trying to find this new identity that, that is a confluence between being Nigerian, being African, being African-American, being black, whatever, mm-hmm. right? You, you discover that... You, you take on so many personalities, right? You you have to know how to blend, you know, when you need to. Um, so it, for people who are right there, it, I would say spend some time asking yourself who you are. We don't, we don't self-reflect a lot. Um, and then just embrace that. You, there will never be any other person like you, right? So find the things that make you happy and invest in them. Oh, so well said. I love that. Okay, so I want to dive a bit deeper into your career here, what you built whilst wrapping your head around your identity and all of that. So, I mean, you started off at university, as you said, by biomedical engineering. Mm. And then straight after that, I think you you went into went to uh, teach mm. um, at Potentially that at that same university. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about that experience there and what that taught you about yourself and what you wanted for yourself at that time. Okay. So as a sophomore in college, I go into this fellowship, the Colin Powell Leadership Fellowship and Public Policy, um, and uh, decided to pick youth disconnection. So youth disconnection is a term that describes you two are out of school and out of work between ages... 15 and 25, those boundaries are blurred, depending on who you talk to. Um, And I did a lot of research around that. So when I graduated, this was 2008, right? You know, the peak of the recession. Um, the, The job offer I got was supposed to have taken me out to Jacksonville, Florida, which I did not want to do. Um, at the same time, uh, there was an opening uh, to teach math and the department was crazy, you know, had gone crazy trying to find someone. I'm like, well, I can do it. You know, <laughs> I studied, you know, engineering. So I started to teach math. I was the youngest person in the department. Um, and I realized that that actually gave me the leeway to do other things, right? So I either thought um, 6 to 9 p.m. at night or 9 to 12 uh, noon, right? So, or sometimes both. But then I had all of the other time in between. Um, Now, at the time, I had also started volunteering with nonprofits that were focused on, you know, this demographic that I was interested in. Um, And uh, the next year, 2009, you know, we co-founded the nonprofit called Relife, right? Um, the mission with a mission to empower disconnected and art rescued through tech education and entrepreneurship. Uh, so what teaching did, did for me was one, um, 
when you at 25 have to stand in front of a class of, you know, people who are older than you and people who are your age um, and have to get them to listen because these are adults. They're not kids where you tell them what to do. Right. Um, you start to learn a few things about yourself and uh, and how to compromise, how to, you know, negotiate and make sure that the relationship is mutually beneficial. Right that I am here teaching to make sure that you pass, but you also are here and you know why you are here. Mm. Um, and that was useful um, for the nonprofit mm. because we're dealing with a population that you literally had to be vulnerable around um, to get across to them, right? So teaching, um, I would say it taught me to be a little bit more sensitive um, to people right? Uh, taught me how to learn, how to create safe spaces for people. Because in a class, it's math, mind you. You have the 1% that are brilliant and know what they're doing. Then you have the mid group in the middle who are trying, you know, as long as they persevere, they can do well. And then you have another group. There are those who are actually trying, but the because of some difficulty or challenges, they find it a little bit more difficult. And then there's a group that just don't care, <laughs> but they're all in the same class. And you have to make sure you're pulling everyone along because you, otherwise you get people who protest. Now, that ability to navigate that space was useful in working with young people, um, people who, had, who were formerly incarcerated, foster care, who were homeless, uh, who had gone through um, uh, domestic violence, uh, just name it, right? And they all had different issues, but educational, you know, psychological, emotional, and you had to be able to take care of them, mm. yeah. Uh, so teaching, I would say, um, helped equip me for that. Um, the other thing, City College, um, in my opinion, uh, and I've been through a few other institutions. Um, I loved City College because of its diversity. Mm. Um, part of the reason why, so the Colin Powell Fellowship helped me to, of course, come to the point where I, I knew what it is I wanted to do, right? Um, with fighting for the people. Um, but what City College did was create the space for me to discover people who did not worship like me, who did not look like me, who did not believe what I believed, um, who shared, you know, political differences. And we had to take the same classes. We had to pass the same exams. So you had to live with them, mm -hmm. right? So part of the reason why I became very passionate about diversity and inclusion was that, was an understanding that above diversity and inclusion being profitable and driving innovation for positive outcomes, I think it humanizes us, right? Um, so as a Christian, if all my life, which pretty much was what it was, you know, um, I was surrounded by other Christians and everything you see about, you know, Muslims or, you know, those who practice Hinduism or Buddhism have all been negative. But now I'm in the same space with a great person who says they're a Muslim. Mm. And then you start to scratch your head, but wait, this, this person is actually better than a lot of people whom I call, you know, Christians, you know? Um, so it starts to humanize us um, to appreciate people better and, and to do better for the world, for humanity. Um, so City College, I would say, you know, unlocked that door for me. Um, and I appreciate, I appreciate the institution for that. Mm. I love that. My next question, what do you think is the power of embracing diversity? That's a deep question. Mm. So I think that a um, few things. So I'll look at it from different, you know, perspectives. So in America, right, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, um, this is what I learned, especially in tech. Um, a lot of people unconsciously or consciously 
align that with affirmative action, which has been demonized as being, you know, um, a threshold for substandard whatever, right? Uh, so I, I sat in on an event, a class actually at Stanford, and we had a guest speaker uh, who came and talked about diversity, but only talked about diversity from a gender diversity mm-hmm. perspective. She's a white woman. And after her one hour, whatever, talk, um, they're like, any questions? I was the only black male in the class. And I said, well, you know, it's actually shocking that you, as a head of diversity and inclusion at such whatever prestigious institution, and would only talk about diversity from a gender perspective, understanding that actually, while gender diversity is profitable, mm-hmm. um, according to data, possibly raise, it could raise you or whatever by 10 to 15%. Racial diversity um, actually doubles that, mm-hmm. goes as high as 40%, right? Um, So I said, I think the problem is when people of color talk about diversity, um, many of you think what we're asking for is, you know, affirmative action. Mm. Um, And I'm like, that's not the case. I'm not African-American. I don't know anything about slavery besides, you know, what's in history books and what you learn from whatever. Um, So I'm not asking you, you know, to be inclusive because it's just the moral thing to do, right? It's a profitable thing to do. Mm. Because when you have people with different perspectives from different experiences, different backgrounds, um, so many things happen at the table, Mm. right? Many of our blind spots, you know, are taken care of, right? Because if I wanted to build a product focused on women, I am not a woman, (laughs) so I cannot my solution would never be as effective as one that would come from a woman, right? If you want to expand into a new market, you're white male and you're trying to build a product that people of color would use, there is absolutely no way, you know, your experiences will be able to define the solution better than someone who actually lives as a person of color, right? So that's the promise, that's the, that's the power in diversity, mm-hmm. right? Being able to get different perspectives to enhance a solution. But it doesn't end there, right? If you bring all these people to the table and they don't feel safe enough to contribute to that solution, you have still missed the point. And that's where inclusion becomes extremely important. You have to let people bring themselves to that table. Otherwise, your culture is flawed, right? Um, So when we talk about diversity and inclusion and, of course, equity, um, there's so much power, one, in unlocking, um, um, I would say, the solutions to um, a lot of the, the... problems we have as humans, right? Um, Like I talked about, it humanizes us a little bit better, right? All of a sudden, I know now when I sit with someone who, um, I can't think of a good example, but you get my point, (laughs) you know, right? So I think, um, and in fact, if you look at, you know, a lot of tech companies, for some people, diversity and inclusion right now is a, is a new fad, mm-hmm. right? Everybody is hiring a chief diversity officer. Uh, but the problem with that is if you're just hiring someone and you're not changing your culture, but your retention, your engagement will still be off, in which case you have defeated, defeated the purpose of doing that, right? So there's the, the power, and I'm still trying to come back to your question, um, the the diversity, equity, and inclusion when done right is so powerful. It's so powerful um, because it has the power to empower everyone who is engaged in it, right? Um, And until we genuinely start to see it as that and not, um, well, you know, affirmative action means I'm supposed to take someone who is less qualified than someone who I think is qualified or, 
oh, well, you know, we're four black males and now I have to bring in a white person and, you know, that's not comfortable for my culture or what I'm used to, right? Um, until we're able to, you know, confront some of the isms and the microaggressions and the biases that we have, um, we will not fully experience the power um, in diversity. How can we confront our biases? So in my opinion, if you're in a position of power, right, it makes it a little bit difficult um, to allow yourself to be uncomfortable, right? Especially if you are not the one making yourself uncomfortable, right? Um, so first and foremost, there would have to be that self-reflection. Who am I? What have I believe, believed in? Am I open enough um, to be corrected, right? Um, am I willing to be corrected? And when I'm corrected, am I willing to learn, you know, to make things right? So the other problem I have seen with, you know, companies or corporations or teams, period, is you hire a chief diversity officer and you task the person with changing the culture or teaching your employees, you know, how to be more, you know, um, inclusive or how to whatever. But if it's not starting at the top. I find it I find this conversation fascinating. I will just say that before I ask you the next question. I think we're bringing up some really, you're bringing up some really interesting points here. I think what I, I want to dive a little bit into your time understanding leadership and management, because you just touched on that. It really does come from the top mm -hmm. and then filters down. So, I mean, you did lots of study, as you said, at Stanford. I think it was also at Cornell. That's it, Cornell, okay. not UPenn. Yeah, UPenn, I was right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so many, many studies and, and, and some of it was in leadership and management. So, you know, how can we become better leaders? What do we need to do as a leader to be able to infiltrate this idea of diversity and inclusion to actually achieve a better outcome? Um, so I, I think my, my definition of leadership may... It differ from many others. Um, you you can't lead effectively if you don't know how to follow, right? And I'm sure we've heard that so many times, but it's actually true. So when I talk about, you know, our abilities to be uncomfortable, you can't grow without, you know, being uncomfortable. The moment you become, you know, too complacent about your environment, um, then one of two things needs to happen. Yeah. Um, growth, you have stopped growing, right? Um, and uncomfortable situations help us grow. Now, when I talk about leadership or management and, you know, managing people or leading people, um, for me, the one thing that defines the way I relate with people is I may know something better than you do, but there's definitely some area in which you are more versed than I am. In which case, leadership should always be about mutual respect, right? Um, some people think it's, you know, about being inaccessible. It's about um, being oppressive or, you know, looking tough and, you know, um, I think leadership, I think effective leadership comes from a place of vulnerability, right? It's me understanding that I can learn from every single person I come in contact with. And the question for me is, what is it that I'm learning from this encounter, this experience, right? Um, if I leave here today without learning anything from you, then yeah, you know, it's something, it didn't, it didn't work. For me, right? Uh, so that's that's a question I constantly ask. You know, I I try to evaluate you know uh, relationships. Um, uh, so in, in terms of leadership, uh, 
people have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And it's, it's not easy. It's not easy for someone to tell you you're wrong. You, especially someone who, you know, is subordinate to you. It's, it's not easy for someone to say, you know, that, mm, that idea is shit. Yeah. Excuse my language. <laughs> you know, like, no, I'm the boss. I should have all the ideas, right? No, but um, you flourish when you create spaces that allow people to be innovative, mm-hmm. that allow people to be who they are. Right. And that's the way you all grow. Right. So as they say, a tree is, does not make a forest. Right. You need everyone contributing at, you know, optimal levels, you know, for growth and for success and for profits and for whatever innovation and all of that to happen. Um, so I think great leadership is the ability of of a, of a leader to understand the the role and importance of every single person on the team and to give them the room uh, to lead in their strengths. Yeah. So well said every time. I love it. Okay, look, Chika, I want to dive a bit deeper into your Startup 52 and then your time in Nigeria running for president. Oh my goodness, we don't have much time left, but I want to dive into this. So let's firstly firstly just start with Startup 52, your idea there, and where you kind of took that idea. Okay, so um, I had run ReLife, which is a nonprofit for a couple of years. Um, And what we learned, it was so fascinating. So here were these young people that everybody pretty much had given up on. Um, and we were, people thought we were crazy when we said, well, we want to teach these young people how to start businesses, mm-hmm. right? Um, by 2014, what we realized was many of them had brilliant ideas mm-hmm. and had the passion, the grit, the hustle um, to make them happen because that was a requirement. By the end of the program, you should be launching a business, right? Um, now, in 2013 and 2014, we mixed them with college students, right, from City College. Mm-hmm. We partnered with the School of Engineering. And by the end of the program, you could not tell who was a college student and who was not by their presentations. Um, but after every session, you had many of the children come back, hey, we still need help with this. So it seemed like we were still with them. So we decided, well, what would be the natural next step for them? Um, So at the time, I started looking into, well, you know, if we set up a pre-acceleration program uh, that takes them a little bit further than, you know, what the nonprofit was doing, um, that would probably be a good way to, you know, take this, move this forward. But during that process and during the process of, you know, trying to set that up, Um, What we discovered was there were many young, educated, vibrant, intelligent people um, who had brilliant ideas, who were very educated, but did not have access to, you know, capital or to the resources that they needed to help their, you know, businesses or startups thrive. Um, And then you start to see numbers as... uh, I think 1% of venture capital um, was awarded to black founders. There were dismal numbers. Um, and then you look around and there was actually no tech accelerator at the time. You know, that was focused on that. So for me, I didn't want to create another nonprofit. I'm like, real life is all the nonprofit <laughs> I will do. Um, so how do we make sure that we solve a problem? Because this is an opportunity. Uh, but do it profitably, right? Um, and then I asked questions like, why isn't there any diversity-focused tech accelerator? And some VCs bluntly said, you know, because founders of color tend to fail at a higher rate. I'm like, well, isn't that the problem, right? You know, if they had what they need or needed, I'm sure a lot of them would succeed a little, succeed a little better. Um so I also didn't want to open an exclusive, you know, accelerator. So oh, this is just for black people or this is. So I started to look at the profitability of diversity, right? Um, and discovered actually um, the, the better way to do this is to look for diversity on the teams, right? 
Um, because at the time, actually till now, when you talk about diversity, people just think, oh, people of color or women or LGBTQ or, you know, um, we have these silos that we create um, in trying to tackle the problem. Uh, but I said, well, if you have four black men, they're just four black men. It's not a diverse group. That's the truth, right? So if you, you know, I think one or two accelerators at the time um, had a quota, you know, they were going to take 15 startups, uh, three of them had to be led by people of color. I'm like, well, your accelerator, yes, may look a little diverse, right? Because you have 12 white founders <laughs> and three people of color leading the other whatever. But the truth is the startups themselves are not experiencing the benefits of diversity. So for us, it was, we want to see diversity on your team, the founding team, right? For several reasons. One, if, if you, if you, if her, you had a white guy, whatever, right? Come together to form a startup, right? As long as it's a brilliant idea, you actually, you have a higher potential of raising more money because white boy can tap into traditional venture capital funds as white boy face will do, right? You would be able to tap into funds that are focused on just women or women-led startups. Um, same thing, you know, Asian, um, African, whatever, right? It, it opens up channels, other channels, right? So for us, and that's besides, of course, the point that all of you are contributing to solutions or to your solution that will enhance it. The other thing is, if you wanted to scale into, say, China or Korea or somewhere in Asia, and they have, you know, access to those markets, it becomes a little easier, right? Then someone who has no connection, no, can't speak the language, doesn't know anybody there trying to break in, right? So it, it creates the opportunity to um, access into other markets. Um, so after we looked at all of that, we decided, you know what? This is a winner. Just in 2015, we launched uh, Startup 52. Um, and our goal is, you know, to create better access to, so support system, resources, capital, all that for founders from what we now call untapped communities, right? So women, people of color, LGBTQ, uh, veterans, immigrants. We, 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 like I said, if you feel like you don't belong, hey, you know, come on on. And then you get calls from white males. Does that mean we're not allowed? Like, no, you too, you know. <laughs> bring, bring your money, bring your connections. We all need them. So, yeah. I love your definition of what it means to have a diverse team or a diverse company or organisation. I think so many of us can get so tripped up, yep. you know, literally what you said, you know, it, it doesn't mean just to have a team of all women enter the, the club or whatever it is. It's, it's really about how do we make the one team be more diverse. Right. Right. I love that. So, look, check out, I want to dive into your time in Nigeria. Now, Firstly, just talk to us a little bit about your desire to want to be pre the president and then what that journey started to look like getting into this. Hmm. Uh, it was a very funny um, story, actually. So I was in Nigeria in 2015 um, during the prior elections. And for me, it was, um, it was shocking that a nation of, at the time, 180 million people um, where half the population was actually under 40 or so at the time, um, could only find a 72-year-old man who had been a military dictator as a viable option against the president at the time. And it just didn't make sense, right? So after that election, I said, okay, um, I'm going to get involved in the next one, but not to run. I had, in fact, I had never ever in my life thought about running for president, especially not in Nigeria, growing up there, right? Um, so initially the plan was I was going to find the best candidate and help them build a, a tech platform. Um, and the reason was after spending three years at Startup 52, I tell people the best time of my, 
of my year is actually evaluating applications. We get applications from 70 plus nations wow. who apply to get in. Um, and for me, um, the quality of applications from Africa seemed about by a decade or more, you know, behind the rest of the world. Mm. Um, and understanding that we were very, very quickly running into the fourth industrial revolution, AI and all this crazy stuff. And at the time, um, some studies had come out that said the people who were, you know, programming, you know, who were coding machine learning and blah, 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 uh, were doing it with their biases, right? So for me, um, Africa seemed like, uh, still seems like, you know, it's, it's, it's headed to a dystopian future, right? Like right now, people of African descent are the most vulnerable to discrimination globally, period. Um, now imagine a future where you're not just vulnerable to discrimination from humans, but also from machines. That's it. That's an entire continent gone, <laughs> you know. Um, and then looking at the, the state of Africa and the leadership in Africa as a whole um, was disappointing, mm. right? There are a few countries, Rwanda, maybe Ghana, mm. Ethiopia, few of them, um, they started to make strides, I want to say, in the last five years. Um, but Nigeria being the largest black nation in the world, the largest economy in Africa, um, I believe there was that mantle of leadership that she was supposed to have in one realigning um, um, the, 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 the lot, I would say, of Africa, right? Um, and two, in defending, you know, people of African descent globally, yeah. right? And we just didn't have that, right? There's this sense of hopelessness across the nation uh, from nothing working. Um, politics is extremely violent and corrupt. Um, healthcare is, I mean, our president goes to the UK to get <laughs> medical treatment and to him, that's not an indictment on his performance, right? Um, so it was everything, everything pretty much was wrong, period. Um, so I said, okay. So I spent some time looking at a bunch of um, candidates at the time and actually had picked one. Uh, but then in April, April of last year, um, I, I, I was invited to speak at some investment conference, U.S.-Nigeria Investment Summit in D.C., and a delegation from Nigeria came to that. After that conference, uh, one of the random people you meet, whatever, sent me a message like, hey, you know, we're on our way back to Nigeria, you know, but I'd like to, you know, sit down with you uh, in New York, if you don't mind. I'm like, ah, okay, sure. Mm. So we met. There's a young young chap as well. Uh, and we, started, we talked about politics. So it, was, uh, it was myself, three of my friends, and him. he's also Nigerian. And uh, he goes, yeah, I don't think anyone who's running right now has a chance against incumbent because, you know, it's, uh, it's a lousy government and blah, 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 blah. So he goes, I think you should run. <laughs> like, dude. So we laughed about it. I'm like, you, you have to be crazy. I don't even know what the requirements are. <laughs> like, no, you know, I think you should do it. I'm like, well, what's the age limit? So prior to last year, you had to be at least 40. He goes, well, you know, there's a bill in the house to drop, to drop the age to 35 um, to get more young people involved. Um, and the president is going to sign it because he went to London and said Nigerian youths are lazy. Um, because it's an election year, he will sign it to try to appease them. Um, so that qualifies you. I'm like, well, I'm not yet 35. But he's like, you will be. <laughs> like, so anyway, we had this back and forth Um two days later, I texted him. I'm like, you have to be crazy. He's like, no, I'm serious. I said, okay, cool. Anyway, <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was literally how the whole idea came up. Um, like, okay, my mom hates politics. Like she hates, I mean, hates is an understatement, <laughs> right? Uh, my father ran for office back in the day in the nineties and she literally campaigned against him. <laughs> Very publicly, like today, they'll always tell you, 
your father lost because of your mother. And she says, she probably admits to that, right? Um, so for me, that was going to be one of the main thresholds, right? If my mom says no, then of course it's no. I mean, I don't live in the country, <laughs> you know. Um, but when I told her, you know, she didn't say no. Mm. She's like, I'll pray for you. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's not a no, so I'll take that. Um, but anyway, you know, uh, during that entire process, so this was April, end of April last year. So between April and when I announced in June, um, I, uh, I did a lot of research. We did a lot of surveys back home. Um, it was just, and the more you discovered, the more, Sad, you know. Um, so anyway, um, we announced and uh, jumped right in. You know. Now, little did I know. So I moved back in August and then came to Australia for a week um, and came back. That process was crazy. My own political party, the political party that said, that unanimously said, this is going to be our candidate, um, began trying to extort money from me. And the funny thing is you can talk about this publicly because then, you know, you scale your supporters. So in the meetings, we all fighted. But in front of the camera, like, what? this is the best <laughs> political party ever. You know, we oh are pro you. So it was horrible. Oh. My VP, we never did any events together. In fact, she wouldn't even take a picture for a poster. <laughs> because technically, you don't choose. The party picks the VP. And she was a mole from another party. It was, it was a disaster. I mean... And the funny thing is, there's nothing you can do. You have to do all the events. You have to pretend like everything is fine. And then the party gave me an ultimatum to, you know, bring them money or that we're going to endorse somebody else. I kid you not. Oh, my Like, well, guys, goodness. I'm looking for money to run for the election, not to pay your bills. No. And it was crazy. Wow. Like, randomly at very odd hours of the night, you get random calls from people you do not know. Um, one said, well, his house just burnt down. He needs money to rebuild it. How did he get my number? Oh, the chairman of the party gave him my number and asked him to reach. Another one, his children could not pay their tuition. He needed money for that. Like it was just craziness, craziness, like craziness. You know, um, and this is not the half of it. Like, trust me. One of the executives told my brother, you know, when people come back, you know, to come run for office, they're not really here to win. They just want to use it to raise money and go away. So you guys will have to sign an MOU that says whatever money you raise, you will split with us 60, 40. I'm like, wait, we're supposed what? to be winning an election here. Like, what is this? It's madness. What is this? Madness. Like, wow. Complete. Like, this is not the half of it. <laughs> this is not even the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> We're saving all the listeners as yep. ears, you know, <laughs> keeping it nice and glossy, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's, wow. yeah. It was, uh, yeah. It was, um, and then the day before I left, we got a call. Uh, some people were trying to kidnap me for money. Jeez. And like, well, I'm leaving tomorrow. So, <laughs> so but, um, so, these were all the bad stuff. Mm. And trust me, they will fill three books, three huge books, right? But there were a lot of bright spots as well. Um, the younger generation, um, I think, are ready for change. Mm. However, though, um, there's a major hurdle that's poverty. So for many of them, it was, we hear you, we believe you, like you're saying all the right things. In fact, you're more qualified than any of these candidates. The problem is we have to eat, mm. right? Um, and the way other candidates, they just bribe people. On that day, they just give money. And they say, listen, the problem is if we vote for you, 
they're going to rig the election anyway. If we vote for you, we don't even get the little money that we would get from them during the elections. Because the truth is, for the next four years, they're still not going to do anything. Mm. Right? So our only uh, option of you know, ensuring that we actually have food to eat today, or not, I'm not talking about a week from now, food for today is we have to take the money, mm. right? Um, so for me, the, the experience, uh, I think the greatest lesson was really understanding where the pain, pain points were, mm. right? Every Nigerian knows the, the problems we have in the country from roads to healthcare to education to power. They will all tell you what this there is deep poverty in a country that is very rich. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, so. could, I could listen to this story. We could go on for, for days. This is the most interesting conversation. I so appreciate you telling us the in-depth struggle that, that was, you know, everything you went through and, and all your learnings and it's, it's fascinating to hear. So we really appreciate you for that. Thank you for having me. Of course. So look, wow. As we come to the close of today's amazing episode, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you, Chike, for the phenomenal work you're doing and that you've done. You continuously step up, put your hand up, take yourself to the next level to help people, to, to show that diversity and inclusion is the way and to just really advance society. And for that, we really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Great. So our final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews here at The Peers Project, is what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? $100 billion? No, I'm messing with you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I think it's just it, the ability to make sure that those who come after you, you know, um, have a precedent to follow, right? Um, everything we do is about legacy, right? Tomorrow when you're not here, um, people will look back and all of the people you've touched in one way or the other um, starts to affect every other person in their circle, right? Um, so my ability to do the little good that I can, um, my hope is that people are able to pay it forward. Um, and hopefully the history books remember, but even if they don't, um, that People that have learned from, you know, people that have learned from me um, are able to, you know, carry whatever lesson it is and um, take the good and share that. And, of course, <laughs> you know, drop the bad. Uh, because we, whether we like it or not, regardless of how wonderful you think you are, there are still people um, who you leave a, a bad taste with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm hoping that, you know, the good definitely outweighs all of that. Uh, but more importantly, that um, as long as there's life in breath, then, you know, we all strive to um, leave the world a better place, you know, for those who are coming after. Right. So it's that. It's my nieces and nephews, my unborn children, you know, um, having a better world to call theirs. Yeah. But yeah. Oh, chicken, ladies and gentlemen, that was absolutely amazing. I'm so excited for everyone listening in to take everything you've said and just take it all in and apply it to themselves. Where can people learn more about you and your work? Um, so I'm on pretty much all social media platforms, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. What else is there? That's it. Um <laughs> Chike Okebu, C-H-I-K-E-U-K-A-E-G-B-U, first and last name. Just connect with me. I'm very accessible. Yeah. Love that. We'll link them up in the show notes. Thank you so much again, Chike. We so appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Of course. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Piers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. 
we hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest PR and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers. <laughs>